In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father, or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, Your throne, O God, will last for ever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through the angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. All right, um, to introduce myself um, to those who may not know me um, and also for those who are tuning in to our service. My name is Augustine. I'm from Ghana and I'm here doing Cornhill and St. Helens is my church family. It's a wonderful privilege that um, I'm here with St. Helens and I really enjoy fellowshipping with, with, with this family. Um, I want to say that I love you all and I pray that um, God would lift this lockdown so that we can meet in person and enjoy fellowshipping with one another. We are all familiar with this experience when an important leader is about to address his nation. Think back a few weeks ago when Boris was about to address the whole people of the UK concerning the next stage of the lockdown. Everybody was waiting to hear his message. Most of us made time that we didn't miss it. And even for those who missed it, I'm sure you still made space to listen to the playback. Why was his word so important? Of course, you know because he's the Prime Minister. But also essentially, as the Prime Minister, we know 
that he has the power to use the police force to prosecute anyone who disobeys his word. And so it is not only good for us to stay home and stay alert, but also mandatory for us to do so. And I wonder if that is also how we see God and his word. That the God we serve is also a speaking God. He spoke in time past to Israel through his holy prophet. He spoke to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, in dreams and in visions, sometimes also using his angels. He spoke through Moses face to face, like the way I'm speaking with you, or like the way you speak with your children or your um, husband. And when he was bringing Israel from Egypt to the promised land at Mount Sinai, he spoke directly to them in their hearing. And again, when he brought them to the promised land, he raised several prophets through whom he spoke his word to his nation. And so the God we serve is always a speaking God. And he has always been speaking to his people through his prophet, generations after generations. Think of Samuel, or Nathan, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Amos, Hosea, Joel, Jeremiah, and many others. These were his small feet, people that he raised as his prophet through whom he gave his word for his people. But throughout their history, we notice that Israel's story is a story of continual rejection of God's word and his prophets. And just as disobeying our prime minister comes with severe consequences, so too it is with God when his people disobey his word. We notice that in the case of Israel, when they disobeyed God's word, the result was their destruction and removal from the land and sent into exile. That was what happened. And the Hebrew author is also telling us today that in these last days, God has again spoken to us. This time, not through his prophet, but through his son, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and he spends paragraph after paragraph telling us who this Jesus is, who this son is. And so as we go through this passage, we are going to see who this Jesus is and why we must pay close attention to his message. And so my first point is we must pay close attention to his message because Jesus is superior to all the prophets. And we are looking at this point from verses 1 through to 3. I wonder if you haven't felt this, but for me, when I read the Old Testament and see the amazing ways in which God used his holy prophet, I'm thrilled by such a display of God's supernatural power and presence in them. Think of Moses. In Deuteronomy 34, verse 10 to 12, he describes Moses as an extraordinary man in history, that no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all in his land. There was none like Moses who was known for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror 
that he did in the sight of all Israel. And so this is a description of such an extraordinary man in history. If you like, it's a description of a prophet par excellence. That he had every evidence to show that God had indeed sent him. That God had indeed spoken to him. If ever God used a man so powerfully in the history of Israel, I think no one beats Moses. He has spoken with God face to face like the way you speak with your friend, like the way you speak with your husband or your wife. Can you even imagine for a moment having a two-way conversation with God like the way you speak with your friend on phone? That was Moses' experience with God. And even more, after Moses, the list continues. Generations after generations, God was raising prophets to bring his word to his people. Samuel was well known in his generation as the prophet whom no one could even deny. Everybody saw the presence of God in this man's life. We are very suspicious of prophets today uh, because of the charismatic extremes and the abuse of it. But in the Old Testament context, they were like God's messengers to his people. If you like, they were his mouthpiece through whom God revealed his plans and purpose and intentions concerning his people. And if you have read the book of 1 Samuel through to 2 Kings, you would have noticed that every time a prophet spoke the word of the Lord, it happened just as he has said it. Why? Because that is exactly what God said to him for his people. And so the prophets were held in high importance in the governance of Israel. Though most of them were persecuted and killed, but essentially they were known in their generations as God's spokesmen to his nation. But the altar of Hebrew, knowing how high his audience held these prophets, he made this point that however much we think of these prophets, however high we view them, Jesus is superior to them all. Superior in the sense that whereas these prophets were just mere servants in the household of God, Jesus is the son in the household of God. Let me give you this illustration. Think of a great house with many servants. No matter the ranks of the servants in the household, the son of the master of the household is greater than all the servants in the household. And that is how the I mean, Hebrew altar rates all the prophets in comparison with Jesus. That whereas these prophets, no matter how high they were, were just servants in God's household, Jesus is the son in the household of God. And so as the son, he is the one God has appointed as the heir of all things. And as an heir, everything in this universe belongs to Jesus. And to establish his close intimacy with his father, we are told in verse 2 that he participated with his father in the creation of this universe. Now this should begin to stretch our minds to want to wonder you know, like, what kind of son is this that he could create and sustain this world by the word of his power? 
And then immediately, verse 3 brings us to this truth that Jesus shares the exact nature of his Father. In other words, whatever the Father has in his nature, the Son also has in his nature. And when we see the Son, we see the glory of the Father. Jesus reveals the full glory and majesty and beauty of God to us. He is the supreme revelation of God to his world. Now, why did the authors go through this Lent to tell us all these facts about Jesus? And I think it is to establish this point that this Jesus, through whom God has spoken his word to us, is not just an ordinary person. He is not one of the prophets. He's a very unique person in history that God has revealed to us to bring his message of salvation. He is the eternal son of God, creator and sustainer of this universe. And he is the one that God has revealed to bring his message of salvation to us. The one who made you and I, who sustains our breath every single moment and not only our breath, but also who sustains this whole universe by the word of his power. He is the one who has entered into our world to bring God's word to us. Now, there is still more to know about Jesus. And that takes me to my second point, that we must pay close attention to him because Jesus is also superior to the angels. And I take this point from verse 3 to 14. You know, I guess many of you are not fond of angels. We hear of them, but they are not in the world of our experience. But if you read the Old Testament, we see a number of occasions where God sends his angels to his people. Abraham welcomed three men in his house and later discovered that one of them was God himself. Jacob sees an angel, or he sees angels in his visions and even wrestles with one of them. Joshua saw an angel who was like an army commander. Samson's parents also saw an angel and felt frightened by that experience. In the book of Daniel, Daniel mentions angel Gabriel, angel Michael as a kind of spiritual army commanders and messengers. And there are a number of other angel visitations in the Bible that I can't mention them all in this sermon. In Hebrews 2 verse 7, we are told that when Jesus was here on earth, he was made lower than the angels. We may not be fond of angels, but in the context of the Jews, angels were powerful spiritual beings who stood in the presence of God in heaven. But verse 3 of this passage takes us right into the priestly work of Jesus on the cross that he says after his work of purification and the language of purification presents a picture of um, the high priest in the temple offering cleansing for sin for his people and that was what Jesus was also doing as his life was poured on the cross for you and I that as his blood was being poured out on the cross, he was offering cleansing for your sin and for my sin and buying a pardon from the Father for us.
And so verse 3 says, after making this purification for sin, after dealing with our sin, cleansing us, offering us pardon for sin, he ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he goes further to say, and he inherited a name that none of the angels in heaven has ever been promised. And the name in this context is the name as the Son of God. Son of God, not in what I have said earlier, in reference to his eternal Son, or the eternal Son of the Father, but Son of God in reference to his office as God's anointed King. If you look at verse 5, the quotes are taken from Psalm 2 verse 7 and 2 Samuel 7 verse 14. And in both contexts, they are all in reference to God's anointed king. And so the point the Hebrew author is making is this, that Jesus is superior to the angels as the name, the office that he has inherited is far and above any of these angels in heaven. Jesus is in heaven on God's throne as king and angels are there to worship him. Verse 6. Angels are his worshippers, whereas he is the king. Whereas angels are creatures, Jesus is the creator, the one who sits on an eternal throne forever. He reigns in a kingdom that is built on a foundation of uprightness and righteousness. He loves righteousness. And so his kingdom is built on justice and righteousness. Heaven and earth will pass away, but he will remain forever. Verse 8 to 12. And so the point is clear. Whereas angels worship Jesus, Jesus is the creator of them. Angels are his messengers whom he sends out to us who are to inherit his salvation. Verse 13 and 14. And again, why would the author go through all this length to give us all this information about Jesus in contrast with these angels? And as I've said, to establish the point that Jesus is superior to these angels. It is to help us see that Jesus is a man of supreme authority in heavenly court and therefore <clears throat> we must pay attention to his message of salvation. Now let me give you this illustration to help you um, get it. You know in the African traditional court system, I'm speaking from a Ghanaian context. The king's palace is usually a place where the king and his elders gather to judge a matter. The king always has several messengers and all the messengers are in ranking order. And um, one interesting thing about this system is that you can judge the weight of a matter by the kind of messenger the king sends to someone a case. So if the king sends someone in his highest ranking order, then you know that this is a serious matter. And I want to say um, this, that the picture we've seen is a bit more like this. That God spoke his word through ranks of messengers, his prophets, his angels, and finally his high-ranking son. And this highlights the seriousness of the message that God has sent to us because of the kind of person 
he has sent to present this message. And so um, that leads me to my third point, that in view of who this Jesus is, in view of who this son is, be very careful not to drift from his message of salvation. And I look at this point from chapter 2, verse 1 to 4. You see, the story of people drifting away from Christ is not new to many of us. Last year, we heard a shocking news in the media about one of the America's most I mean, evan famous evangelical pastors, Joshua Harris. After several years of ministry, he came out to announce publicly that he was leaving his marriage. And nine days later, he gave up entirely on Christ. Unfortunately, these are stories I'm sure most of you are familiar with. They are always sad, and I mean sad endings of people who perhaps began their Christian journey so And it's not entirely new, even in the Bible's own story of people. In Exodus and Numbers, we are told of a similar story that Israel also began their journey so well. But when they were hit with life in the wilderness, what happened? It was as if God had done nothing for them. And because of unbelief and hardening of hearts, all that generation perished and failed to enter the promised land, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. In fact, there are many things that can cause us to drift away from the message that we have received from Christ. Satan may use persecution, worries, anxieties, cares about this life. They are his distractions. They are, they are kind of like distractions that are meant to redirect our focus away from Christ. They take our minds away from Christ and refocus us on our present needs and difficulties. And once we give in to these distractions, friends, that is when we begin to give up. I mean, we begin with little compromises and then we start drifting slowly and slowly. We start with little, I mean, little excuses. Excuses like um, we, we find good reasons to forsake fellowships, to forsake meetings. And we start building compromises. So things like reading our Bible and praying and keeping in step with one another begin to fade away from our normal routines as we get them replaced with other things that we think they deserve our attention. And so if we allow these distractions to shape or reach, I mean, refocus our life with time, you begin to realize that you no longer have passion for the Lord. Your joy in the Lord has virtually disappeared. Such is how men or those people who seem like great men in the feet drifted away from, from the message of salvation. Someone said, before any mighty fall, there has always been million steps away from the truth. And so distractions are one of the ways that can cause us to drift slowly, slowly from our salvation. And so to avoid this danger of drifting, the author is showing us a way to prevent it. And the way to prevent it is attention, attention, 
attention pay attention to the message of Christ fix your minds on Jesus disdain all the distractions that Satan brings on your way and run away from it look into your life if there's anything that you think are distracting they take your mind your focus away from Christ pay attention and run away from them they are ways to drift you away from Christ they are ways to make you compromise it is the enemy's distraction meant to steal your attention away from Christ the altar wants us to see our salvation as a treasure that our minds and our hearts are always on and friends I want to say that how much attention we pay to our salvation is a measure of how much we value our salvation and again if we think that the consequences of drifting off from this salvation is something we could escape or get away with then we have underestimated the seriousness of our salvation you see in our passage verse 2 to 4 helps us to see the seriousness of drifting off from this great salvation we have in Christ it makes the point by giving a contrast between the message declared by angels and the message declared by Christ himself and the point is this that if the message declared by angels were true and reliable and every disobedience or transgression of this message received a just punishment a just retribution then how much more this message of salvation declared to us by Christ himself who is superior to these angels and more than that God himself has bore witness to this message by signs and wonders and various gifts and by the gift of the Holy Spirit and so this is a great salvation that we have received in Christ how can we drift from this salvation and think that we can escape the consequences the message that I want to leave you with is let's pay attention to the message we have in Christ the message of Christ let's fix our minds on Jesus let us do everything we can to make sure that we don't drift from this message let us descend the distractions in our lives and run away from it and give all our time and attention to this great gift of salvation God has given to us little things like praying fellowshipping reading the Bible let's take them serious especially as especially at this time that the enemy doesn't bring other distractions to steal our attention away from us to steal our minds away from us so that we drift with time <music>